Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 43, the book of Matthew, chapter 12. Well, we closed last week with discussing the establishment, the purpose, the ongoing relevance of the Sabbath. And this stems from the opening verse of Matthew chapter 12, which is, One Shabbat during that time, Yeshua was walking through some wheat fields, and His Talmudim, His disciples were hungry, so they began picking heads of grain and eating them. Now as one who spent the first half of my life not observing the true Sabbath, or believing I was observing it on a Sunday, it still perplexes me in some ways why the truth eluded me. I mean, yes, I carried that lovely white leather covered Bible with my name on it in gold letters to children's Sunday school. It was awarded to me for perfect attendance. And later in life, I carried the more adult black leather covered Bible under my arm to church each Sunday, still believing I was observing the Sabbath day. I had a beautiful copy of the Ten Commandments framed prominently hanging in my home. So why didn't I believe what both the Bible and that listing of the Ten Commandments says? that the Sabbath is the seventh day, it's not the first day of each week, and that I have an obligation to God to observe it. Now, I suppose I could point a finger at the countless sermons of the many pastors and ministers I heard over those almost 40 years, who either proclaim Sunday as the Sabbath or while not necessarily claiming it, their words and their prayers heavily implied it, I mean, after all, weren't they the experts? Who was I to question them? And yet, how many times did I read right over the words of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, that the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, and it never occurred to me to wonder, even challenge, why the church determined that we didn't have to obey it, and even moved Sabbath to another day. Yet in reality, such a move wasn't actually the case either. As I explained to you last week, in reality, is it was at a council of church bishops meeting from various far-flung parts of the Roman Empire in the years 363 when Christian observance of the Biblical Sabbath was officially brought to a halt. It was abolished. The attending bishops established that Sunday, the first day of the week, was to become the new weekly communal meeting day for Christians. And if they desired to have a rest, then it should be on that day, it should be on Sunday. And that Sunday would be, for Christians, considered as the Lord's Day. So the Lord's Day was sort 
of a substitution for Sabbath. Now, you know, this wasn't a mistake, it was intentional. It was part of an agenda, and it was wrong. After the Lord opened my eyes to the truth of His Word, and I was forced to face this unnerving reality that several of the long-cherished church doctrines I had been taught defied the clear words and divine instructions of the Bible. I began a faith journey to discover the truth in a more comprehensive, a more authentic way. One of the first challenges I encountered was that of the Sabbath. Now, last week we established the plain biblical truth about the seventh day Sabbath, Shabbat in Hebrew, and also that the Sabbath was not originally ordained on Mount Sinai during the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, but rather it was established at the beginning of the world as the concluding act of God's work of creation. Genesis 2.1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished along with everything in them, and on the seventh day God was finished with His work which He had made. So He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. God blessed the seventh day and separated it as holy. Because on that day God rested from all His work which He had created so that it itself could produce. Thus, when we read the Ten Commandments as written in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment was not that God was inaugurating the Sabbath, but rather the Israelites were to remember it, they were to recall it, they were to restart its observance. That is, it had always been from Adam and Eve onward that the seventh day was to be a day of ceasing in remembrance of the creation. However, at Mount Sinai, since the entire world's population that had emerged since the Great Flood seems to have forgotten it, God also made observing Sabbath as a sign of acceptance of the covenant of Moses, whereby He set Israel and all God-worshippers apart from all other humans on the planet as his own. Exodus 31, 12-17, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, you are to observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations, so that you will know that I am Adonai who set you apart for me. Therefore you are to keep my Shabbat, because it is set apart for you. Everyone who treats it as ordinary must be put to death, for whoever does any work on it is to be cut off from his people. On six days work will get done, but on the seventh day is Shabbat for complete rest, set apart for Adonai. Whoever does any work on the day of Shabbat must be put to death. The people of Israel are to keep the Shabbat, to observe Shabbat through all their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the people of Israel forever, for in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day He stopped working and He rested. 
Therefore, from a biblical perspective, there is no more important day, no more important observance for God worshipers than that of Shabbat. Further, it's not held up to us as an option. So how are we to observe Shabbat? Well, this is actually what is at issue in the first several verses of Matthew chapter 12 as regards the hungry disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath. Now, to answer this question of how to observe the Sabbath, we're going to have to approach it from a few different perspectives. Today, I'd like to begin with the Orthodox Jewish perspective. I have in my library a two-volume set of Shabbat observance instructions that total over 300 pages. And among religious Jews, this is actually considered as more or less the Reader's Digest version. Yeah. It's actually the Reader's Digest version of the many laws and commands of the rabbis that have been compiled over the centuries. Rabbi Zev Greenwald is the author of this two-volume set. And I'd like to quote for you part of the introduction from volume one of the set. Shabbat is not merely an opportunity for physical rest. It is an exalted and sublime day that we are to utilize for spiritual inspiration. We relate to the Shabbat Mincha prayer, a day of rest and holiness you have given your people. Abraham rejoices, Isaac sings joyously, and Jacob and his sons rest thereon. A rest of love and of free will. A rest of truth and faithfulness. A rest of peace and tranquility and of serenity and security. A perfect rest with which you are pleased. Your children will realize and know that the rest comes from you, and through their rest they sanctify your name. Shabbat has the power to release us from weekday concerns, enabling us to rise above the mundaneness of the six weekdays and feel the spirituality of the seventh, which is a foretaste of the cessation of work and the rest of the eternal world. A person who truly observes Shabbat is able to carry over to the other days of the week the spirituality and the special mood of the Shabbat prayers and meals. Thus, Shabbat becomes a source of inspiration and holiness to the days that precede and follow it. Jesus would not have disagreed with a word of that. And in fact, as we're going to see, he validates it especially as Shabbat being a foretaste of the cessation of work and the rest of the eternal world. But herein lies one of the challenges of Sabbath, of Shabbat. Exactly what are we to do and not do to properly observe the day? Now, anyone who has been to Israel quickly learns that the entire Jewish society there revolves around Sabbath. Their week is structured 
around Sabbath. Work hours are structured around Sabbath. Store opening hours are structured around Sabbath. The week precisely follows the biblical command. It is not based on Jewish tradition. Stores begin the closing process on mid-afternoon on Friday. Work ceases in time for everybody to get home before the Sabbath commences, but also to give the working folks time to prepare for the Sabbath. By sundown, the city streets and the sidewalks throughout Israel are empty. Whether we're talking about the super-religious places like Jerusalem and Sfat, or the super-secular places like Tel Aviv and Eilat, the rhythm of Israel beats to the drum of Shabbat. Yet at this point, Yeshua would not agree with everything that the revered Orthodox rabbis and sages of the past have ordained as Jewish law, halacha, that defines what goes on, what doesn't go on, on Shabbat. Now the mere fact that I have spoken to you about a two-volume set of Sabbath instructions ought to be enough to make my point, especially when no such large number of numerous Sabbath regulations exists in the Torah or in the Law of Moses or in the entire Bible, Old and New Testaments. We find the following in the Torah, Deuteronomy 5. 12 through 15. Observe the day of Shabbat to set it apart as holy, as Adonai your God has ordered you to do. You have six days to labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai your God. On it you are not to do any kind of work not you, your son or your daughter, not your male or female slave, not your ox, your donkey, any of your livestock, not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property so that your male and female servants can rest, just as you do. You are to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Adonai your God brought you out from there with a strong and an outstretched arm. Therefore Adonai your God has ordered you to keep the day of Shabbat." Now, I want you to notice two things about Sabbath observance as defined by God in His Word. First. Sabbath is not a God-ordained of communal worship. It's not a God-ordained day of it. No biblical instruction, Old or New Testament, sets aside a weekly day of communal worship. Sabbath and the day of worship are no way connected. The Jewish custom of communal worship on Shabbat is a Jewish law. It's a man-made tradition. This doesn't at all make it wrong in some way. But what is wrong is to pronounce it as a God-ordained instruction. Now for Christians, the nearly universal communal meeting day of Sunday is also not to be found in the Bible. Rather, it too is a Christian church law, a man-made custom, which I've shown you was ordered as a formal doctrine and rule more than three centuries after Christ's time. Neither is this long-standing Christian tradition wrong 
but it is wrong to in some way holify it as though it was of divine origin or instruction. See, the second thing to notice is what the only commanded biblical observance of the seventh day Sabbath is. No work. No work. Essentially, the bulk of Jewish tradition about Sabbath has to do with defining what work is. And sort of rolled up with the issue of work is what ceasing creating amounts to. Thus, it is that since God ceased creating on the seventh day, then so should mankind. So from the 30,000 foot view, work can be defined as humanity ceasing from creating and doing this in imitation of God. This entire issue is itself wrapped up in the Jewish word that's always translated to work in English Bibles. That word is melcha, melcha. Therefore, all the commandments about Sabbath, mostly about what we are not to do, what we are not to do, is melcha. We're not to create. Now, the Hebrew lexicons are in full agreement as to what melcha means and refers to. It is occupation, work, business. And once we understand this, then what we are not to do begins to reveal itself. We are not to do our occupation or our skill. We are not to do work, hard labor. We are not to conduct business on the Sabbath. Every one of these things involves creating and ceasing. But even trying to discern the specifics of what this means is the topic of hundreds of rabbinical rulings in the Mishnah and the Talmud. Now it's easy to look at these many arcane rules of Jewish law about Sabbath and, and then just discount them on their face. Now some of those rules even involve the intricacies of how one carries a cooking pot or the order in which one cuts their fingernails. More practically, many Christians know that Jews don't drive cars on the Sabbath, or they don't turn on a stove or an oven on Sabbath. The even more strict don't turn on lights. This is because one strand of Jewish law says that ignition, as in igniting a fire, is part of creating. That is, when we drive a car, ignition is occurring in the engine. When we turn on a stove, we either ignite a flammable gas or we create a spark for electric heating elements. All ovens that Jews use have what is called a Sabbath setting. You've probably heard of this before. This is essentially a tiny little heating element in the oven that's been properly sized 
such that it doesn't have to turn on and off to regulate the temperature. So it is enabled just before the Sabbath and disabled immediately following. Light bulbs are unscrewed from their sockets before Friday sundown, and yet others are turned on and left on during the duration of Sabbath because the action of turning a light bulb on creates ignition. I cannot tell you how many times I've hardly been able to sleep because of a light bulb hanging over my bed on Sabbath in Israel. Now we can snicker and we can roll our eyes at all these things, yet we should also remember and respect that for many centuries, even before Yeshua arrived, the Israelites continually and sincerely wrestled with what not to do on Sabbath versus what was permitted. And this was in order to obey and please God. Christians, on the other hand, have for around 17 centuries just dismissed Sabbath altogether. So little serious thought within the church has been directed at the subject other than to just denounce its observance or just strike it off from the Ten Commandments. My point is that it's not that as Christians we should follow Jewish law on the matter of Sabbath, but rather it can be a most useful resource to help us gain a practical understanding on the matter of work and what it amounts to, which has been studied and various solutions found within the Hebrew community for 3,000 years. So as we get ready now to continue in Matthew 12, I'm going to sum up the issue of Sabbath, Sabbath observance as it's presented in God's Word. First and foremost is that Gentile Christians are as equally bound to the Biblical Seventh-day Sabbath as are Jews, because Gentile believers are spiritually bound to Israel and to their covenants and because it was also, especially as concerned Sabbath, it was a law that was ordained at creation. Second is that the only biblical rule about how to observe the seventh-day Sabbath is to do no work on it. That's it. That sums it up. But communal worship is not only not commanded for Sabbath, Nowhere in the Bible is a weekly communal worship service on a specific day commanded. Third, is that the church didn't actually change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. It abolished it. And this change or abolishing is purely an unauthorized and frankly wicked man-made tradition. There was made to not just discourage Jews from being part of the body of Christ, but also to turn Gentiles into anti-Semites. Don't kid yourself, this is the truth. It has succeeded, oh it succeeded, much to Satan's delight. And fourth, is that the definition of work, especially as it applies, to 21st century Western society means 
to not labor within our occupations or to do our regular or, or hard labors, such as cooking or making repairs, and we're not to operate our businesses. Now, I've only touched on the tip of the iceberg as it relates to Shabbat, and I have no doubt you've got tons of questions now circulating in your heads. But we need to move on, and we're going to deal with the matter of the Sabbath in more bite-sized chunks as we continue our adventure through the Gospel of Matthew. So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Now, let me just say something before we get started. I have found out recently that all, all kinds of different versions now of the complete Jewish Bible, and they're all numbered differently on pages. So I'm going to stop saying what page to look on because it's just going to confuse everybody. I think you can find Matthew chapter 12 all on your own. Um, so go to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read the first 16 verses. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 16. One Shabbat during that time, Yeshua was walking through some wheat fields. His Talmudim were hungry, so they began picking heads of grain and eating them. And on seeing this, the Parshim, the Pharisees, said to him, Look, your Talmudim, your disciples, are violating Shabbat. But he said to them, Haven't you ever read what David did when he and those with him were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he ate the bread of the presence, which was prohibited both to him and to his com uh, companions. It is permitted only to the Kohanim, to the priests. Or haven't you read in the Torah that on Shabbat, the priests profane Sabbath and yet are blameless. I tell you, there is in this place something greater than the temple. If you knew what I want compassion rather than animal sacrifice meant, you would not condemn the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of Shabbat. Now going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man there had a shriveled hand, and looking for a reason to accuse him of something, they asked him, Is healing permitted on Shabbat? But he answered, Well, if you have a sheep that falls in a pit on Shabbat, which of you won't take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, what is permitted on Shabbat is to do good. Then to the man he said, Hold out your hand. And as he held it out, it became restored, as sound as the other one. But the Pharisees went out and began plotting how they might do away with Yeshua. Unaware of all of this, he left the area. Many followed him. He healed them all, but he warned them not to make him known. Well, now the you have an understanding of the many issues about Sabbath as regards what may be done, what may not be done on that day, you're better equipped to understand this Sabbath controversy that Yeshua encountered. Some might, even might say that He caused it. Now perhaps the most important thing to understand is that in no way was Yeshua abolishing Shabbat or easing its God given rules, or remolding those rules to his liking. Rather, he was challenging the many man-made rules and doctrines, 
that the Pharisees were insisting upon that so greatly burdened first century Judaism, all of their Jewish society. Although it's impossible to know precisely how many rules and what they all were regarding Shabbat in Yeshua's day, we encounter a few of them in Matthew's Gospel. Today, Judaism counts 39 categories of what work amounts to. Now, the specific issue before Yeshua is the picking of grain on Sabbath by His disciples and that such picking was prohibited by the Jewish laws of the time. See, it was three laws about Sabbath that the Pharisees would have seen as being violated. The first was that by plucking the grain kernels they were harvesting. The second was that by rolling those grain kernels in their hands they were threshing. And third, that by separating the grain from the chaff they were winnowing. Now all of these things were, by Jewish law, categorized as melcha, labor, work. And who among us would claim that harvesting, threshing, and winnowing was not labor, and therefore the very thing that God prohibited on Shabbat? Yet I would argue against this point. See, the Pharisees' position that the disciples were harvesting, threshing, and winnowing is the straining of gnats. It is not taking into account proportion and scale. Pinching a few heads of grain off of some stalks as you stroll by is not the same thing as taking a handful of stalks and cutting them off with a sickle. Rubbing a few kernels of plucked grain in the palm of one's hands is not the same as spreading thousands of stalks onto a hard surface and running them over with a weighted sled pulled by an oxen. And the bit of chaff that falls to the ground from the disciples rubbing the grain in their hands is not the same as having this, some huge pile of threshed grain being systematically thrown into the air with a pitchfork. It's an issue of degrees, and God absolutely looks at things in degrees, and so then does Christ. Such a matter of degrees is front and center in the Sermon on the Mount. When Yeshua speaks of the status of the lesser and the greater that enter the kingdom of heaven based upon the measure of one's diligence to obey the law of Moses. Already the concept of a Sabbath day's walk existed in His day. Walking on Shabbat was permitted, <laughs> otherwise all of Israel would have been frozen in place. Note that there was no objection by the Pharisees to the disciples walking from somewhere to get to the grain field and then walking through it to get to somewhere else. They didn't ask where they came from or where they were going. There was some amount of physical exertion called walking that was allowed on Sabbath, but walking anymore 
than a prescribed distance by Jewish law constituted melacha, labor, so that was outlawed on Shabbat. And that distance at that time was 3,000 cubits, about three quarters of a mile. Now Jesus responds to the Pharisees with what I think is an answer that doesn't seem on the surface to be a very good analogy. In verse 3 he refers to what David did. Now the only rationale that Jesus offers for what David did is his men were hungry. And what they did was to enter the tabernacle, at that time was located in Nob, take the showbread that was being replaced that day with the new, and they ate it. Now let's take a look at this story as it's documented in 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21, 1. So David got up and left, and Yehontan, that's Jonathan, went back to the city, and David went to see Ahimelech, the priest, and Nob. Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the Cohen, The king has sent me on a mission and told me not to let anyone know its purpose nor what I've ordered you to do, what I've been ordered to do. I've arranged a place where the guards are to meet me. Now, what do you have on hand? If you can spare five loaves of bread, give them to me, or whatever there is. And the priest answered David, I don't have any regular bread. However, there is consecrated bread, but only if the guards have abstained from women. And David answered the Kohen, the priest, Of course women have been kept away from us, as on previous campaigns. Whenever I go out on campaign, the men's gear is clean, even if it's an ordinary trip. How much more than today, when they will be putting something consecrated in their packs? So the Kohen gave him the consecrated bread, because there was no bread there other than the show bread that had been removed from before Adonai to be replaced by freshly baked bread on the day the old bread was removed. Now I want you to notice a few things. First of all, David and his men sent out from Jerusalem, and we find this in the preceding chapter. It wasn't very far to Nob, maybe a day, day and a half's walk. Second of all, David didn't barge in and just take the showbread. He went to the priest in charge and he asked for food. Three, the priest said the only bread they had was the consecrated bread, the showbread that had been removed from the holy place a few hours earlier and then replaced with fresh. See, this occurs by biblical, by biblical command each Sabbath. And fourth, David and his men were welcome to have five loaves of it, that's left less than half the total amount, provided they were ritually clean. This is the meaning about their staying away from women because having sex brought in ritual impurity with it. So David didn't commandeer the bread, he didn't enter the holy spaces of the tabernacle that were prohibited to him. And unlike what Jewish tradition says, David and his men were not in starvation. So their lives were not in danger. Rather, they were just hungry. 
The thing that was wrong with what David did was not that he stole something or that it was Sabbath when this happened. It was that only priests are entitled to eat that consecrated bread. So David broke no Sabbath laws. But he did seem to break the law of Moses about eating holy food that was only allowed to be eaten by holy men, priests. And on the surface, the priest that voluntarily gave it to him was every bit as much sinning as was David. See, the thing is that neither were Jesus and his disciples starving, nor were their lives in danger, if they didn't eat. Like David and his men, Yeshua and his men were just hungry, because all humans get hungry during the day. It was Sabbath. No business could be transacted to purchase food, and so they had to make do. Therefore, what is the principle by which Christ is saying that it was okay for his disciples to pluck the grain and eat it on Sabbath? What's the principle? Well, the David incident and the Jesus incident have been debated among scholars with no consensus of opinion, but I'd like to analyze it this way. First of all, the only reason Sabbath enters this picture with the David incident is that it is only on Sabbath that the old showbread is removed from the tabernacle and the new bread replaces it. The priest didn't offer and David didn't ask for the new fresh bread. No matter what the circumstances or what day of the week it might have occurred, no one but priests were allowed to consume the showbread, whether it was the old bread or the new bread. The Jesus incident also happened on Shabbat. And the fact that it was Shabbat, well, in his story, that's the crux of the matter. On any other day of the week, the Pharisees would have found no fault in Christ's disciples plucking some grain and eating it. See, the common ground between these two stories, the David story and the Jesus story, is the issue of hunger, but not at all to the level of starvation. And then, of course, what do you do about it on the Sabbath? Now, the other common ground was that there was no other means for the people involved to get food at that time. Nob was in a wilderness area, and it was a sizable distance to the next town. Stopping at Nob was Dave, David's only choice. The priests there claimed they had no other food except for the old showbread. Jesus' disciples were going somewhere on Shabbat at a time when the normal purchase of food was prohibited. So some other means to get food was needed. Plucking grain from a field and eating just a few bits of it raw was the solution. The only bottom line that can fit both of these scenarios for why it was not wrong in Jesus' eyes is mercy. 
mercy. The priest of Nob showed mercy to David and his men, but the Pharisees showed no mercy to Jesus and his hungry men. Jesus is saying they should have. Therefore, we learn that Shabbat does not bar acts of mercy, but rather ought to encourage them. And considering the holiness of the day, shouldn't mercy have perhaps an even greater priority? I mean, what a great example this story is of how God worshipers can turn obedience to the law into a burden or even into unkindness. The law of Moses is essentially several hundred case examples showing us in detail how to put into action the two foundational and overriding God principles that drives the instruction of the entire Bible. Love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. Love our fellow man as ourselves. We should not deprive our fellow man of food or mercy because his needs occur on a holy day, even if it means we may not be following a specific law of Moses according to the letter. See, this is the Call Vomer argument, light and heavy. That is, there are weightier matters and there are lesser matters of the law. Every law and command is not equal in its seriousness or in its effect. Every sin is not equal in its seriousness or its effect. See, what matters is our motive and our intent with every act tempered with mercy. Mercy. See, I want to say this in the strongest possible way. If it is sincerely our motive and intent to obey God, we must study His Word. We must. And if we study His Word, denying no part of it, then we'll understand what God is demanding of us far better than if we don't. And upon that understanding, then we'll be able to determine upon any of the infinite number of situations we could find ourselves in, how best to properly apply the law of Moses in the spirit that God intends it. I'm also going to inject a pet peeve. When I hear someone say to me that they're a New Testament Christian, meaning they see no relevance of the Old Testament to their lives, it is only out of better judgment that I don't say to that person, then you're also an ignorant Christian. If one refuses to know the Torah and the Old Testament, then that person has greatly diminished how to properly discern the words of Jesus or the Apostles. I know this is an indisputable fact from my own personal experience and from working with so many New Testament pastors. 
And while mercy is called for as a high virtue, at the same time, mercy does not relieve us of devoted obedience to God's laws. So in verse 5, in defending his stance on the righteousness of his disciples plucking grain from a field in order to satisfy their hunger, Yeshua says something that cannot be understood without the knowledge of the Torah. He says that, according to the law, on Shabbat, priests profane the Sabbath, and yet they are held blameless. Think about that for a second. Here's the issue. On Shabbat, priests do melcha. They do work. On Shabbat, they practice their regular occupation. They do physical labor. They perform the temple rituals on Shabbat, just as they do the other days of the week. Yeshua has but moments earlier given an example of this with the priests of Nob making and replacing showbread in the tabernacle on the Sabbath, but sacrificing animals and produce on the altar also occurs on Shabbat, and this too was a law of Moses. So this work of the priests on Shabbat can in one sense be rightfully seen as profaning the Sabbath, and yet God holds these priests blameless and innocent. Why? Because they are serving Him in the way they are obligated to, even if on the other hand it may indeed be sin in some circumstances. This is yet another example of Calvomer, light versus heavy. The priest has to choose. Does he find it the weightier matter of the law to serve both God and his fellow man by sacrificing animals on the Sabbath on behalf of all, of, of all Israel? Huh. Or does he determine that it is weightier to do no work and to take away any chance of his being held to have personally broken a commandment. If ever there's proof to destroy the argument that the law of Moses is some rigid mechanical set of burdensome rules, this is it. The law is anything but rigid. And when obeyed and applied in the proper spirit, obedience to it is beautiful and it's satisfying. And it's beneficial to and in harmony with God's creation and with His kingdom. What Yeshua is doing is condemning the rigidity and the lack of mercy that's inherent in the man made doctrines and traditions of the Pharisees. He is pointing out the mercy of the priest of Nob, but the unkindness and the merciless traditions that the Pharisees are insisting upon. Now this may all sound lofty and highly spiritual or even something that can only occur in Hebrew society from ancient times. Not true. 
In modern times, we regularly find ourselves confronted with a situation in which it seems that whichever way we turn, we are going to break one of God's laws and thus commit a sin. I have used, because it's so dramatic, the situation of this World War II hero, Corey Tenboom, who hid Jews in her home so the Nazis wouldn't kill them. Her duly elected German government passed laws to end the Jewish problem. Her duly elected leaders made it a law that all Jews were to be turned in, no one was to harbor them. On several occasions she was confronted by her civil authorities if she knew the whereabouts of certain Jews, Jews she was hiding. She lied. She said, no, I don't know. She made a choice that countless of her Christian friends in Germany did not make. They decided that Jesus' commandment to obey their local government and the commandment not to lie was weightier than saving the lives of innocent Jews whom the state wanted to murder by the millions. She decided correctly. She acted with mercy. Those other Christians decided wrongly, showing ignorance and the lack of mercy. Was her lying a sin? Yes, it was. The Ten Commandments don't say, do not lie. Well, except if you. But was it better before God, was it weightier for her to save innocent human lives than to allow her local government to murder them, even if the law to eliminate them was by earthly standards entirely legal? No doubt by showing mercy, her sin of lying was forgiven by our merciful God. Just as the priest of Nob had his, had his sin forgiven for feeding David and his hungry men the showbread to which they were not entitled. Verse 6 says, I tell you, there is in this place something greater than the temple. This sentence nearly seems out of place, considering the subject of Sabbath controversy and what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. What can it mean? So to understand it, we have to break it down simply and not let our minds fill in the blanks. The phrase, in this place, can only mean right there, right there in the grain field where the Pharisees were confronting Yeshua, and we really don't even know where in the Holy Land that was. The second issue is what the temple has to do with it. Notice that in the last two verses, the subject has revolved around actions located at the temple, the priest at Nob, and the showbread, and then the priest profaning each Sabbath by doing the temple sacrifices. So whatever it is that Christ is talking about, 
that is greater than the temple, something that is present there in that grain field is being weighed against the things that go on inside the temple. There are three primary solutions usually offered as to who or what it is that's greater than the temple. Some scholars believe it is referring to the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven. Others think it's referring to the disciples, the ones plucking the grain. Still others think it is referring to Jesus Himself. It is also often thought that by saying that something is greater than the temple, it is to be interpreted that Yeshua means something is greater than the Law of Moses. This last interpretation, of course, fits into the standard Christian narrative that the Law of Moses was abolished. And to those who make that claim, I say, there's not one word about the Law of Moses here. Not a word. The temple is the subject, not the Law of Moses. I think Robert H. Gundry has the most probable answer that fits the context, and I'm going to paraphrase him. He explains that what is present in that grain field is a superior greatness even when compared to the greatness of the temple. He stresses that what he means by that is the quality of superior greatness as opposed to the superior greatness of Yeshua's personal identity. Okay, what exactly is that certain quality of superior greatness? It is the incomparable earthly presence of the divine saving activity, redemption, as embodied within Yeshua of Nazareth, Daniel's Son of Man. You see, Christ saves, the temple does not. We'll continue in Matthew chapter 12 next week.